Hello, welcome to Rusty Sonnets, the podcast where I read out an old poem, give it a good going over before I wander off on one. Today, uh, my sorry, my name is Niall, and today we will be looking at The Burning Babe by Robert Southwell. This is the late Christmas episode. Um, even though the, the the poem isn't that Christmassy, but it's got quite an uh, one at least one very obvious Christmassy element to it. So I was intending to record this podcast before Christmas, but then Christmas happened, and I don't know how your Christmas was. I kind of I enjoyed my Christmas. It was a restful Christmas. Um, it's always good when you got kids. Christmas is definitely better with kids. It buys you favours with the rest of your family as well, stuff like that. Like, like it puts off the arguments for at least a couple of days because kids, yay! So, um, at least it does in my household and some other households I know of. But so I, I, I intended to get this recorded, and then life stuff and and um, my job stuff as well uh, it just got in the way. So I'm really sorry if I have for the big sort of unannounced break, but. Being that no one's paying me for this, I, I feel totally justified in doing it whenever I feel like as well. Now, I will be a man of my word, so before I start on this poem, just a thing about next week. Next week is the last Sunday of the month. I'll be posting this on a Sunday, um, which means our next episode will be the Paradise Lost Book Club Part 1. And what it will be is that I will be looking at one book, so it's sort of a chapter, basically. I'll be looking at Paradise Lost once a month over the duration of the year and I'll be so I'll be looking at one book one particular book so if you want to join in with me then you can just read the first book of Paradise Lost you can get it on Project Gutenberg and lots of free book websites if you don't you know or you can buy yourself a paper book for paper version for next to nothing as well from most shops and then um I would ask you if you want to join in, if you could just have a bit of a read of it. Read that first book of Paradise Lost. should take you about an hour, I reckon, to read it. So I know that's asking a lot, an hour of your precious time after I've just told you how I don't have time to do this blooming podcast. And yet I expect you to do this for me. But if you fancy joining in and if you fancy reading Paradise Lost over the course of the year with me then you can. So just um, read that first chapter. And if you have any observations to send me, then just send them to me. You can email me at rustysonnets at gmail.com or Twitter me at poetniall, P-O-E-T-N-I-A-L-L. And um, I'd love to hear your observations if you want to read it with me. If not, the podcast format will be just me talking about it for how long, however long it takes me to talk about it. I'll probably read out some excerpts, but obviously I won't be reading out the whole book. So that will be different to the current podcast format in that sense. Um, but let's look at today's poem. So today's poem is The Burning Babe by Robert Southwell. He's got the um, he's got the postfix SJ. Now, I don't know what that means or how I should pronounce it. I'm guessing it's um, is it like, like he's a um, he was a Jesuit throughout his life. So I don't know if it's a Jesuit title. Hey, maybe you guys can let me know because I'm feeling lazy. I'm going to do so much less research this way this year, guys. Um, 
I think one reason why it takes a while and a bit of commitment to make one of these episodes is that I do, I do a few days worth of research into each subject and I have to fit in a lot of reading. But now we're getting a few in. Now that we're sort of approaching, we've gone past 25. I think we've gone past 30. I don't even remember what number we're on. So, you know, we're closer to 50 than we were before. I think we'll get to a point where at least if I'm repeating poets, I don't have to give you their life story and all the ephemera of their life again. You know, you can just maybe listen to the earlier episode if you want to and and, and catch up in that way. So I might become... I'm not saying that I was excessively academic beforehand, but I might become significantly less academic if I want to keep posting. I think I'm all right to just read some of these poems and give you my impressions of these poems and to admit to my ignorance when I haven't researched enough with these poems. So I'm looking through my research, which I started doing before Christmas for this poem, and I'll give you some some information on the life of this gentleman, of, of Robert Southwell, S.J., I don't know if he's a social justice warrior or something. I don't know. That's like a sort of curse, isn't it, for for people that, um, I don't know, believe in being nice to other groups of people. So he lived from 1561 to 1595. So he, he died a young man. Um, he lived, he, he was sent, so he was born in, he was born in 1561 in, um, I think, Horsham in Norfolk, not the Horsham that's in Sussex. And he was sent overseas in 1576 to be educated as a Jesuit. He devoted himself to his teachings as as he grew up. And when he was a young man, he was ordained in 1584. So he was sent overseas for about 10 years. And so in 1586, he returned to England, but he returned on a mission. So he returned as a sort of missionary. Why? Because... um. England was now, sorry for these noises, I'm moving my microphone because I'm getting a bit of cramp in my hand. So, um, in 1586, England was ruled by Queen Elizabeth I, and it was very much a Protestant Church of England state, as as was set up by her father, but of course her the ruler before before Queen Elizabeth was Queen Mary, otherwise known as Bloody Queen Mary, who liked uh, roasting Protestants in barbecues. So things had swung over to the Catholics, but with Elizabeth, things had swung back over to the Protestants again. So it was illegal to be um, a Catholic priest in England at the time. It was in, it was illegal to, to teach Catholic teachings, and I think it was illegal to administer Mass as well. So he was sent over in secret, And for six years, he served as a sort of pastor, but again, very secretly. Um, He he, he lived under the protection of Anne, the Countess of Arundel, whose husband, the Earl of Arundel, was in the Tower of London at the time. It's Arundel. You know what, though? um, Whenever I uh, go past it on a train sometimes about a couple of times a year i go out uh, we we go out on a on a nice little trip with the kids and we go past a rundle station and it's spelt r-a-r-u-n-d-e-l and so we say to the kids look and there's a castle and everything you can see out the window and we say to them look it's arundel from frozen and they believed it for the first year until until basically the castle for them looked like an underwhelming castle it's an amazing castle but to them compared to their their, their images of a castle from frozen it was very underwhelming so um it's a bit underwhelming a bit like it's underwhelming actually when um i was with my daughter in sainsbury's and uh, we got to the frozen section and uh, she was really excited until she saw it was full of very cold food so back to arundel so he lived under the protection of Anne, Countess of Arundel, for about six years. But in 1592, he was ca- captured by um, a, 
a man called Richard Topcliffe, who was a famous priest hunter. So he was, it just already sounds, you know, like Richard Pryor, uh, uh, it Vincent Price, not Richard Price or Richard Pryor, Vincent Price. Sounds like a Vincent Price character. Um, he was a, a nasty, nasty piece of work. So it was his job to hunt down priests, hunt down all these hidden priests. And he, he very much enjoyed his job. And he was a bit of a bit of a swat for Queen Elizabeth, one of her favorites again. And um, he captured Robert Southwell. Bit of a gap there. He captured Robert Southwell, and now this gentleman, Topcliffe, was allowed to torture people. He was such a he was such a goody two shoes to the Queen that he was granted the luxury of being able to torture people in his own home. So this is where he took Southwell, and Southwell was in the custody of Topcliffe, and then of the. Um, Privy Council interrogators for one month before he was sent to the Tower of London. So he probably was tortured for a whole month to try and get the location of other priests. When he was sent to the Tower of London to his friends, it was seen as an actual relief. That's how bad it was when he was in the house of Topcliffe and in the custody of the interrogators. They felt that that wasn't as bad a thing when he was sent to the, you know one of the most notorious prisons in history. So he was sent to the Tower of London. And he, he was there for a couple of years and he was moved to a cell in, I think, was it Newgate? I could be wrong. It was meant to be an infamous cell in Newgate called Limbo. And then he was put on trial on February the 20th, 1595 for administering the mass and acting as a Catholic priest. And he was found guilty. And then he was executed the next day. Um, by the method being that he was hanged, drawn and quartered. You probably know about that particular exercise of, of execution. And uh, it is it is one of the most horrible forms of execution that you can think of if you do look it up. Although in his trial, he said that he was tortured around 10 times. He was tortured 10 times during his uh, imprisonment. And said that he would rather endure 10 executions one after the other than endure one of those torture sessions. So I can only imagine how terrible that torture was. So he was executed. In 1970, he was canonised as one of the four, four martyrs of England and Wales by the church. And obviously we have his poetry. Now he wrote his poetry, well most of the poetry that we can read of his today, or in his most famous works of poetry were written in the six years of his mission in England. The, the poetry, he's not seen as a major poet like some of his other contemporaries, like that dude called Shakespeare, but he's still very much respected and almost seen as influential on other poets at the time as well. So it was obviously a religiously motivated poetry. It was a poetry which engaged with the topic of suffering, which is very Catholic, I guess, and very Jesuit. But um, yes, and and... He was very aware of the sort of situation that Catholics were in, and maybe even though he said that it was a it, Catholics were persecuted for political and not religious um, reasons, he wrote propaganda as well, and he wrote pamphlets. Ultimately, he he the notion of suffering was important to him, and I guess it's like a lot of um, what we have found sometimes in some forms of Christianity: the idea that suffering brings you closer to God. 
and I think that is certainly here in this poem. So we're going to read the poem now. This is this is burning the ba- the burning not burning the babe. We we are going to get into some just slightly off key investigations of the imagery of this poem after I've read it out. But but for now, um, I just you know calling it burning the babe is just terrible. Even though the burning babe is also just a very disturbing title. So let's read it out. The Burning Babe by Robert Southwell. As I, in hoary winter's night, stood shivering in the snow, surprised I was with sudden heat which made my heart to glow, and lifting up a fearful eye to view what fire was near, a pretty babe all burning bright did in the air appear, who scorched with excessive heat such floods of tears did shed, as though his floods would quench his flames which with his tears were fed. Alas, quoth he, but newly born, in fiery heats I fry, yet none approach to warm their hearts or fill my fire, but I, my faultless breast the furnaces, the fuel wounding thorns, love is the fire and sighs the smoke, the ashes shame and scorns, the fuel justice layeth on, and mercy blows the coals, the metal in this furnace wrought are men's defiled souls, for which, as now on fire I am to work them to their good, so will I melt into a bath to wash them in my blood. With this he vanished out of sight, and swiftly shrunk away, and straight I called unto mind that it was Christmas Day. That's the poem. Merry Christmas, everyone. That was your Christmas episode, you see, that I was planning to do. Wouldn't this have added some cheer and some joy to your Christmas? I'm going to look at the idea of Christmas as it is portrayed in this poem. But firstly, let's just look at the argument of the poem. Let's look at the form of the poem and let's look at the imagery of the poem. And then we can extrapolate a bit more, like nearly a month after the fact on Christmas after that. Okay, so... Uh, yes the poem i mean firstly it's structure let's have a look i mean it's one two three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven twelve so it's a 16 line poem i say this because it almost looks like a sonnet when you first look at it on the page and i can't help but look at view it's you know view it's it's the way it moves and its structure and the and the, and the way the poem progresses as a sonnet might um but for now Let's look at the argument. So it's pretty simple. It was a cold winter's night um, when suddenly he feels this heat and he looks up and there appearing before him is a child, a babe, I guess, a baby who is scorched with excessive heat, which floods of tears did shed. And so um, he's crying while he's on fire, this baby that's appearing before him and the tears, instead of you know the tears flooding down instead of putting the fire out they seem to feed the flames of the fire and make it burn ever faster so this is when the baby talks to to robert southwell in the poem and says um you know but newly born in fiery heats i fry you know it's weird isn't it because you can think of the image of a of a of a talking baby with flames surrounding them and it still isn't that disturbing because it's so surreal plus we could imagine it almost like a renaissance painting you know you could imagine just these flames not being obviously you know the the, the flames aren't really burning the child or something like that but um but then when he says in these heats i fry 
the, the word fry just adds a, a physicality to it that makes it very uncomfortable all of a sudden. Before it was this ethereal fire, you know, the fire that is obviously symbolic and represents something. But now it's saying fry. It's as if you've got a baby in a frying pan, isn't it? It's like, like you've got a little griddle, you know, flipping it over with a spatula, bit of seasoning, um, medium rare. So, you know, that's not, that's, yeah, exactly. That's bad taste. And I'm sorry if I've, I've put you off anything that you might be eating or whatever else in your life. But but, but that particular, just by saying I fry, it, it, it just made it seem more, more, more physical and suddenly more disturbing. So he says that here he is in this in this heat, but no one no one comes to him still. No one sees that it's their salvation. Um, so and then he 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 extends this metaphor over the next oh, I would say six lines, uh, maybe six or seven lines. So he says that his breast is the furnace, and then um, his faultless breast the furnace is. So that's his heart. His heart is the furnace, really. The fuel wounding fawns. So the things that, that are fueling the fire are the insults that have been put upon him. Um, the fuel wounding fawns is interesting, isn't it? Because he's foreseeing his death, obviously. If this is the baby Jesus that is appearing on fire. Now, the, the, actually, this could also be referring to the harrowing of hell, because according to some doctrines, especially, I think Catholic doctrine at least, it's meant to be that Christ, when he after he died on the cross, one of the places he went to before he was resurrected and appeared again was hell. Um, I can't remember what he did in hell. Whatever it was, it was quite harrowing, I hear. But he went to hell. I don't know what he did in hell. And then he went back up again. And then he, and then he was resurrected and finally he... Um, ascended into heaven maybe it's because god has to be in all these places maybe every place has to be involved in the play of the resurrection i'm not sure so but he's a this is the baby jesus for seeing his death and so so the fawns represent the injuries the mocking so it's interesting this so if the fire um let's see so um love is the fire so his love is fueled um because he says love is the fire afterwards. So the fire is, you know, his breast is the furnace. Love is the fire. The fuel of the fire is the fawn. So, so, so he's able to love in a way because of his suffering, because he is mocked and sighs the smoke and the ashes, shame and scorns. The fuel justice layeth on. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so even though um, the wounding justice serves the wounding fawns, I think there's a lot of mixed metaphors happening here, aren't there? I don't think he's keeping track of the actual logic of how the metaphors come together. And mercy blows the coals. I, that makes sense, obviously. Well, no, it doesn't. Of course it doesn't make... <laughs> mercy blows the coals. I, I was thinking blowing the coals as if to cool them down. You know, <laughs> stop fire. But of course that's not what happens. You blow the coals in order to raise the fire up. So mercy is actually... Mercy is increasing his suffering... Mercy is it. Mercy is making the fire burn brighter and hotter. The metal in this furnace wrought are men's defiled souls. So he's saying, "Come to him," but at the same time, he's on fire. He's saying, "Come to me, and you have to be transformed." So, so yes, in, if you go into the furnace, then your soul will be transformed. For which, as now on fire, I am. I, I am to work them to their good. So will I melt into a bath to wash them? in my blood again i so after he's transformed their souls he melts into a bath 
um the bath is like if you're forging something in a furnace you put it in water afterwards don't you to cool it down if i remember right i'm guessing that's what he means so so just looking at while all of these things seem related to each other you know he's he's taking different parts of the idea you know quickly even though he's appearing as a child that's on fire he he um he suddenly becomes more like a furnace almost so so because the furnace isn't an obvious thing is it it's just yes there's fire but he's obviously moved on to the subject of a furnace afterwards so he's a furnace and it's the function of the furnace to take your soul and make it pure again okay i get that but i also think that i just think there's a lot of the images yes they map onto this idea of a furnace but they don't really map together they don't really when you compare when you look at the the logic of the furnace and all these parts of the furnace and how they work together the things that he's attributing them to so um, i've spoken about metaphor before and we speak about a tenor and a vehicle and a ground if i remember right so the tenor is the the vehicle is the thing that you're using as a metaphor the tenor is the thing that it means and the ground is the sort of logical logic the reason the relationship between the two because it is that relationship which obviously is the thing that's being expressed so what i think is that the, the, the function of how these furnace elements come together don't quite match with the functions of how he puts of of the um of the of the tenors that he applies to these vehicles so you know the fuel justice layathon mercy blows the coals it, it some of these contradict each other a little bit i think so anyway final two lines with this he vanished out of sight and swiftly shrunk away and straight i call it unto mind that it was christmas day such an intense ending to the poem so yes the poem is very intense already just because he's having this nightmarish hallucination which is actually the, the 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 image of salvation to him but at the same time um he he wakes up and then he realizes it's christmas day and i think that's where, where this poem almost looks a little bit alien to us because he sees this i mean maybe the babies he knows he's in england and and it's meant to be i read somewhere that the the chances of a priest being caught at this time were one in three i think he was administering around london as well maybe london was i don't know if london was an easier place to get caught or a harder place to get caught because of the relatively big population I, mean, I can see arguments going each way so i do wonder if the poem is him looking to see if you know him foreseeing his own suffering trying to come to terms with his own suffering and then seeing the suffering of christ which is envisioned as a baby and that makes sense actually because as i said he remembers it's christmas day so maybe the reason why it's the baby jesus in flames that's appearing to him rather than jesus on the cross is this particular connection between the child that christ was and then the fate that he had maybe he was looking at his own innocence and the fate that he had going forward but you know it, it reminds me of i mean what was christmas before the victorians you know what was christmas back in the day what was the christmas for oliver cromwell banned i'm not sure actually i don't know i i do hear that, that, that you know for christmas obviously this whole thing about presents and obviously father christmas but even the things of, of you know these these pagan these pagan festival of light aspects of christmas like conifers and lights 
and stuff like that that, that come more from the pagan celebrations that, that that came before Christmas and that Christmas sort of replaced. I don't know. Uh, some of these I, I hear or I've read came from the Victorians. A lot of what we have as we celebrate Christmas, everything from like the, you know, people even say Charles Dickens invented it. But, you know, having the big dry meat of a, of a large dead bird in the middle of a table and all that kind of stuff this is all the stuff that we associate with christmas now but christmas i'm guessing back then was more of an just a religious observation a religious festival so for him christmas day was just about remembering the birth of christ but i just find it yeah i, I mean what works for me about this poem is just how intense the imagery is and how strange it is when when it's associated with Christmas at the end of this. And maybe it is quite a good thing that I'm not really releasing this one on Christmas Day because um, it's not a very Christmassy poem, is it? Let's look at the form a little bit. So one thing I find distinctive are these long lines. Now, if you were listening, you would probably, I would reckon that you would probably, if I if I recited the poem to you, and you know, you kind of a little bit knew your onions about formal poetry. You would probably transcribe it as something like a ballad. It feels like a ballad. It's, uh, you know, it's like a Christian ballad. I mean, we looked at um, The Cherry Tree Carol by um, Anonymous, <laughs> my favourite poet. And in The Cherry Tree Carol, it's a similar thing. We have a talking Jesus, a talking baby Jesus in that poem as well. And this, this uh, here it is again. This idea of this, the, the the babe Jesus that can that can talk, that can speak, that is sentient. So I'm not saying babies aren't sentient, by the way, especially when we have a poem about frying them. Um, but you get what I mean, as in it can speak. It has this, it is articulate, and the miracle of a speaking child, and how that miracle of a speaking child is actually represented in the quran and also in the in in the birth of jesus as portrayed in the quran but also it's there in um in in the buddha nativity as well buddha also sort of um i think jumps out of his mother's side i don't know swinging his umbilical cord round and start speaking and so um the miracle of a baby speaking is is is, is, is has been around quite a bit in religious ideas and, and and religious iconography even though we don't really experience it as much today so yes the, it it is like a it is like a ballad but actually it's written as i said it's all one block of text like a sonnet and it's obviously these lines which seem like they should be ballads of lines because so let's let's read two lines out as i in hoary winter's night stood shivering in the snow so surprised i was with sudden heat which made my heart to glow so just listening to the poem i would have had that as as four lines as i in winter's night as i in hoary winter's night break the line there stood shivering in the snow it sounds like um iambic tetrameter followed by iambic trimeter which is the form that we see in a in a ballad but it's not that it's one long line so those two things that those two like both that what I would have broken up into two lines is actually one long line. So what what effect does that create? Perhaps it creates an effect of, of urgency. Um, the poem, it 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 almost just visually contradicts the sing song nature, the the balladic nature of the poem, and it, it gives a sense of urgency to it. So I don't know if this is just if if this was a genuine 
um, formatting choice or whether it was just something that was just unconsciously done or even how maybe the poem has just been badly transcribed. I have no idea. I mean, I'm looking at on the Poetry Foundation website and they're normally really good at that kind of thing. But I'm just saying whoever, if this has survived as a manuscript, maybe it's been written out many times and maybe the, the formatting has changed. I don't know. So it does proceed like a ballad in that sense as well. In, in the way that, the, the, you know, if we were to spit it into quatrains, um, it, it sort of, it still follows the subject lines. So, you know, the first quatrain would be about, you know, it was cold, then I felt heat, and then I saw a burning babe, quatrain one. Then, um, it, you know, he sort of, it was scorched with heat, the tears were shed, um, and the floods of the tears, and then he starts speaking, alas, quote he. Um, so, <laughs> I've completely lost my train of thought. Where was I? Yeah, it feels like a ballad, but it's not a ballad. And it's it's somewhere between a ballad and a sonnet, and I find that that really interesting. So so formally, it's also written in because it's because the, it's it's been presented where where we would normally get two lines in a ballad. It's just one line. Um, the rhyme scheme, rather than being um, A B C B, which is w what it would be if we'd formatted it like a ballad. It's it's now in couplets, so it is like A A B B C C D D E E F F G G H H I I. It ends by going I I. So yeah, that's the um, that's the rhyme scheme of the poem. I I I just think it's a very strange rhyme scheme, and the and the lines are, are quite artificially long because they just feel like they should be broken into a more traditional ballad meter. But that's the way it goes. That's the way we've been presented with it. And I have no idea if it's fully intentional or not. Um, I think that's enough about the poem for now. I don't know what I'm going to wander off on one about. So if I'm going to wander off on one, I better wander off on one right now. So let's summon Ric Flair. Thank you very much, Ric Flair. Okay, so I, I really realised that I got one thing wrong. Very wrong. I'm sure I got many things wrong about this poem, but one thing I got particularly wrong was I was speaking about the poem as, as some kind of dream that he woke from, but that's not really the case, is it? Because he stood in the snow and then this apparition appears and then he realises it's Christmas Day. So I don't know why I, I kind of read it as thinking that he was waking up to think it was Christmas Day, because it isn't. He's been walking about in the snow, not knowing it was Christmas Day, which is strange for a man of the faith. And then the child appears to him and then he has the vision and and he uh and then he realizes it's christmas day after the child is gone so what was i gonna i was gonna go off on one about dreams and then i realized oh but it wasn't really a dream was it it was a vision it was a vision um but still it's an interesting thing to talk about and i think it's an, an interesting thing to think about out loud the idea of visions of hallucinations i don't think i've had many hallucinations in my life one or two one a couple um, I'm, I'm going to go for natural hallucinations one uh, rather than hallucinations that might have been brought on by uh, one state or another. So um, I did used to have, I don't know, one a common hallucination people have is often when they're when they wake up out of bed. So their first moments of wakeful consciousness. Um, I had one where someone was sat at the end of my bed once and I looked and there was someone sat at the end of my bed. And then he, and then it was a man of some kind, and I felt very safe, almost as if this this figure was watching over me, and then the figure just dematerialized, 
just vanished like a really old kind of special effect you know when something would vanish in an old film and it would just fade it was like that and it was you know if it had a lot of relevance i felt weirdly safe i wasn't freaked out by it at all and it happened and i did wonder to myself whether any of my friends had died or something in that moment now i'm not sure what happened there I don't necessarily think it was something that happened out there in the world. I don't think there really was a spirit or a ghost watching me. But it was a curious experience because it really was an interesting hallucination. And um, and I'm not sure what was happening in my brain for me to have that. I didn't know. I mean, one reason why I thought it was definitely a hallucination was that it happened pretty much immediately after waking up. And I can imagine that my brain... My mind is booting up into wakefulness and how the residue of dreams or whatever can follow me over. Um, I've also had points in my life where I've, I've seen something thinking it was something and it ended up looking like some, being something else as I got closer to it. But interesting how my brain actually has presented me with this other thing. It almost is like I'm looking at this thing and then it's it's not that thing at all. So um, normally when we hallucinate someone watching us or whatever, now... It's meant to be um, that the one thing a human being has or mammals seem to have is a hyperactive agency detector. I think I'm stealing this from Dan Dennett. And that is the idea of uh, you're in a house, a piece of snow just falls on the ground. And the first thing you think of is who is that? And then it ends up being a what is that? So it seems that we're, we're sort of hardwired to see agency as a first stop whenever something suddenly happens and and makes us alert and makes us wonder what it is so i think i think conjuring this like this image of someone stood or sat at the end of my bed you know the, the, the fact that i woke up and perhaps there's this big blooming sensory confusion and so the first thing my mind does is put it together as a who situation rather than a what situation I'm not sure, but I was thinking about dreams anyway, even though this is not really a dream in a poem. And I do think it's interesting how dreams, I don't know if you've ever had a dream affect your whole day. I have occasionally, not very well, but I, not very often, but I have a dream and it really just wakes, it, it just follows me through the day. Maybe it, sometimes it's a dream about losing people that I love. And, and that's, I think it's quite good to have those dreams because when you wake up and you realise they're still with you, um, you can really appreciate them and be nice to them all day and, and just really have, you know, be, be thankful for what you've got. So those are good. So, but I find it interesting that your dream is the place where your, your mind goes, your mind does stuff. And then you really, even though dreams are dreams and they're not real, they're not physical things happening in the world, they can still just color everything that we do afterwards, after they've happened, if they're really powerful. And, um, I read something really interesting about dreams, um, I think by someone called Alan Walker, who's like a, a meditator, a sort of Buddhist or something like that. And um, he said a really interesting thing about dreams, about what we're like in dreams and why why dreams are always fraught with anxiety. And the reason why many dreams are fraught with anxiety is because um, the, a dream is just the mind. There might be a little bit of input when things happen, maybe a loud noise happens or an alarm goes off and that sometimes finds its way into your dream. But most of the time we're in the world when we're awake and so we're getting information from the world, but we've also got our minds and how our minds operate in the world as well. So consciousness in a waking state is this trade-off between our own minds, our own thoughts, the things that seem to sort of assail us from within, but it's balanced by whatever assails us from without. Wallace Stevens had a great definition of poetry 
by defining it as a violence from within that sort of goes up against the violence from without. And that comes to mind now when I bring up this, this idea. But when you're dreaming, there's no, there's no data arriving from the world. It's just your mind, your thinking. It is just your thoughts. And so Walker says that, um, I think he's called Alan Walker. I might not, I think Alan Walker is, was a, uh, <laughs> I think he might be a paleoanthropologist. I can't remember. Anyway, the, um, you know this whoever this gentleman was if it's just your thoughts and nothing else no other information um we have a word for that when we we live too much in our thoughts live too much in our heads and that's um neurosis so he just says that every single one of us when we're in dreams we're neurotic and um because we can't we are completely at the mercy of our own thoughts and our own daydreams or or dreams as they're known <laughs> um and that's that so I find that I, th- I find that interesting. I often have to practice something. I practice meditation anyway, but I do like to practice something sometimes when I wake up from a dreaming state, which is I wake up from my dreaming state and then I find somewhere quiet to go and sit down and I wake up again. And I know that sounds weird, as in I try to think about the psychic residue of my dreaming of just being this completely mental creature for on and off for a few hours and how I have to become a creature in the world again, a creature in the world, a mind in the world. And so what I will do is I will often do different meditation exercises, not normally nothing more than 10 minutes, in order to just wipe the mind clean, have a little moment of emptiness, have a little moment just to reset everything. And, then I, and I always feel that that's the second time I wake up. So there's a time I wake up and uh, I'm letting the world in, the, the visual experience of the world, the aural experience of the world. But the second time I wake up is when I I finally try and stop whatever is still grabbing hold of me mentally, whatever little worlds I'm traveling into after waking up um, physically. Then I do the second waking up where I I try and reclaim my mind and trying to get my, 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 it's like a refreshing a browser. I refresh my internal browser just so I'm finally, okay, I am beginning now. This is the beginning of my day. That's what I do don't know if you do anything like that but that's my little routine um next week is paradise lost isn't it if you want to spend a week reading the first book of paradise lost or even just reading a summary or something like that of the first book of paradise lost or browsing in and out of the first book of paradise lost that would be great i would like you to join me if you have any questions about it maybe you're reading through it and you think this makes no sense whatsoever that's absolutely fine but next sunday (laughs) which will be the last Sunday of every month I will be talking about a book from Paradise Lost for the rest of this year so hopefully you will join me in that with the Paradise Lost book club anyway it's nice to be back I felt this was an underwhelming episode for me didn't feel on top form recording this but it doesn't matter I still really appreciate it you're listening Um, if you're able to share this podcast whichever way you can you'll be doing me a massive favour but I'm not going to spend too much time begging just want to say thank you for listening have a good one bye bye